Let's open up our Bibles this morning to Psalm 66. Everybody has training that they go through professionally, and when you go to seminary, you're trained to do exegesis, ex meaning out of, and not isogesis, meaning iso meaning into. What we love to do is come to Scripture and go, oh, this is, I know this is what it says and this is what I want it to say, so I'm going to use this passage and this is what we're going to do. But if you read it and you see the meaning and you pull out of the Word what it says, all that to say is I had a plan of what we were going to do and it got thrown out the window because the Word said something else when I started to dig into it. Uh, when I really got into what it said, I was, I was like, well, we have to go in a new direction. Now, you didn't know all that, but that's what, that's what went on uh, off and on throughout the week as, as I uh, as looked at Psalm 66 and, and the portion for this morning. So if you're able, would you stand with us? And I'll just read verses 8 through 12. Heavenly Father, come upon us today with your Holy Spirit and open our eyes that we might see your word, that we might understand your word. Put aside our own expectations and our own thoughts, Lord, and fill us with yours today. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Psalm 66, verses 8 through 12. Bless our God, O peoples, and sound his praises abroad, who keeps us in life and does not allow our feet to slip. For thou hast tried us, O God, thou hast refined us as silver is refined. Thou didst bring us into the net, thou didst lay an oppressive burden upon our loins. Thou didst make men ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water, yet thou didst bring us into a place of abundance. This is God's inspired word for us today, so please be seated. You'll notice throughout the psalm, there's a little, usually in uh, brackets, there's the word Selah. Remember that that is uh, a call for us to stop and contemplate. Okay, we read that much. So if you're reading through the psalms and you come across that, uh, that means stop, contemplate what you just read. Pray upon it, think upon it, and when you've done, then go on to the next portion of it. So Psalm 66, we we think, uh, was written in response to the deliverance that comes out of 2 Kings 19. In 2 Kings 19, um, Jerusalem is surrounded. Sennacherib, the Assyrian king, is is, uh, besieging Jerusalem. It looks very bad. There's 180 plus thousand troops out there. And uh, everybody in Jerusalem thinks they're going to die. But the prophet comes out and says, basically, wait and see what the Lord is going to do. And they come out in the morning and find all 180 plus thousand Assyrians are have been killed by the Lord through the night. It's this great song of deliverance. Um, So whoever composed the psalm uh, calls various groups together to sing the praises of this Lord. Okay. Now, if you look back and just see the end of verse, uh, at the end of Psalm 65, verses 12 and 13, the pastures of the wilderness uh, drip, the hills gird themselves rejoicing, the meadows are clothed with flocks, the valleys are covered with grain, they shout for joy, yes, they sing. And then, so we see that this, and we've looked at this before, this created world that, that is sings of the praises of the Lord. And then we come into 66, I, I say this because there's some thought that 65 and 66 are one long psalm, okay, but uh, the editors have, have 
seen fit to divide them. Then we go into shout joyfully to God all the earth, all the earth. There's a distinction here and the created order is called to praise the Lord. Everything in the earth is called to shout joyfully to the Lord. So really, um, you, you know, it, there was forecasted on Wednesday night thunder snow. I don't know if anybody heard it or not, but I immediately thought of Dan and, 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 and you know, I wanted to run out and hear it. Uh, I, I didn't hear any thunderstorm, but it was forecasted. I heard it. We shout joyfully to God, all the earth, sing the glory of his name, make his praise glorious. The earth was created by God to demonstrate his holiness, to demonstrate his glory. We see this time and time again throughout some of the Psalms that we have studied. We see it in Romans that the world is created to demonstrate the things of the Lord. Now, the created order just does that on its own because it's created to do that and that's what it does you look at the beauty of a flower of a tree you look at the complexities of the world and how it was made it sings of the praises of its creator well here we are perhaps the most complex of all creation and what do we do Eh, we'd rather sing our own praises okay so we have to be reminded on a regular basis to sing the praises of our lord to sing the praises of our Creator, because it's the Creator, not the creature, that deserves the praise, that deserves the honor. So last week, Dan covered the first seven verses, called upon the entire earth to give praise. So what we have here is, is first of all, He's the God of all, the whole earth. Then the psalm brings it down to a call to the covenant people, specifically the Jews, sing your praises of your Lord, and then ultimately down to the psalmist himself. One man is called to sing the praises of the Lord. Okay, shout to joy for the Lord, sing to the glory of his name. The whole world doesn't usually do that as, as, the, create, as, as the creature. Now we might get together in this country on the last, the last Thursday in November, and we sit around a table and we might look at each other and say, what are you thankful for? Okay, and we, that, that may be as a, the non-believers have one day a year that they might say that they're thankful for something. It may, they may not mention God's name during the Thanksgiving thanks, but they say they're to be thankful for something. Well, here, we are called to praise the Lord in all things, especially the people like us the people who come to worship, the people who has, whose lives have been changed by the things of our Heavenly Father. The first seven verses really are a call to all the earth, a call to the nations, um, a call to the really the Gentile nations. Okay? And then we come into our section, uh, and it is a call more to the people who understand the changes that come with the Lord. Okay, Now the nations... The, the people who don't believe in the Lord are still called upon to praise Him, but they do it from the outside, so to speak. They do it in a way that it would be like a non-believer coming to church, somebody who doesn't believe in God, but here they are, they see all these people coming into this building on a Sunday morning, and they come in, and they sing the first hymn, and they say the Apostles' Creed, and they sing the, the glory and the doxology, and they do that, and they go through the motions, and they sit and they hear the word, but it does not penetrate them. 
they worship that well they don't worship because they you can't don't worship what you don't believe in but there is a call here on the nations look at verse 8 bless O god O peoples that would be the nations but they can only do it in an external fashion their hearts have not been made right but when we look at the people of god the chosen people of god our hearts have been changed That's the opportunity we have now because we understand His power. We understand His authority. We understand what it means to be a new creation in Christ. As we are today, we have this great opportunity to praise Him. So what is striking is that one of the reasons we are called upon to praise God is because He brings trials into our lives. He brings burdens into our lives, and He puts them upon us. Now, there are plenty of psalms that are psalms of lament. Lord, why have you done this? Lord, why are you letting these people invade us? Why are you letting you know, your chosen people suffer in this way? And they're lamenting their state in life. Psalm 66 doesn't so much seem to lament a state in life as to rejoice in a trial that the Lord is bringing upon him. Now this, 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 this is where I got stopped this week. And, and this is what uh, I thought, well, that just doesn't sound right. <laughs> okay? Because how many of us, in the midst of a trial, in the midst of some terrible suffering, have said, Lord, I am so thankful that you have brought this upon me. If, you all, if you've said that, well, fabulous. You're, you're farther down the road than I am. Okay? Now, there was one person... That, that looked at me, and, and many of you will know Chris Broom. She looked at me in the hospital like the last few weeks of her life, and she looked at me and said, I would not trade this for anything. Okay, she suffered from breast cancer off and on for such a long time, and then it just metastasized, and she said, I would not trade this for anything. I've grown so close to the Lord in these years. He has used this in such a powerful way in my life. And I, I, what do you say to that? I, I, I could not, I could, I could hear it, but I did not have the spiritual depth to understand it. But she did. Okay, she understood what it meant to have a trial and to rejoice in the midst of that trial. Well, the trials serve a positive purpose here in this psalm. And it is the Lord who brings the trial upon these people. Remember Isaiah 53? It was the Lord's will to do what to Christ? To his suffering servant to crush him okay and it is in that crushing it is by his stripes that we find the healing so they realize that sometimes the lord brings upon a nation and brings upon an individual these trials and there are purposes in these trials so the suffering that is attributed to the lord look at verse 10 for thou hast tried us O god thou hast refined us as silver is refined There's no indication that this is punishment. There's no indication of abandonment by the Lord. But there seems to be a positive result. And that positive result is a refining, a refinement. And a refinement can indicate in Scripture either a process of trial or a process of purification. And you think, Maybe there have been times in your life you thought, I don't want to be any purer, Lord. Okay, can't you go purify somebody else for a while? Because I've had enough here. But apparently he wants us to be pure. Now, which is not 
clear here, which it was meant here in particular is not clear. But if we look at the other things that have been mentioned here, as an example, their trials of their time in Egypt that Dan dealt with last week. 400 plus years of slavery. What was the Lord doing in that time? Was he punishing them or was he purifying them, getting them ready for what he had, this great act of salvation that he would deliver his people? Well, let's take a moment and look at a couple things here that that deal with two things. One is our experience of God and two, the doctrine of God and the doctrines that the Lord has and teaches us here. How we experience the work of God differs amongst each believer because our place in life our spiritual maturity level differs among each of us. But that does not mean that the doctrines of God change in any fashion. We know that the doctrines of God are the same. They were the same for our great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandparents. They are the same for us. They will be the same for our great-great-great-great-grandchildren, and on and on, because they are set by the Lord. They are the doctrines, doctrines of providence, doctrines of God's sovereignty, doctrines that teach us and shape us. Now, the fact of how we live those out and how we experience God's love and God's care in our life is somewhat dependent upon where I am in life. Some of us need a particular type of care because of the situation that we're in or because of how the Lord is shaping us because of what he has for us down the road. How many of us have gone through a trial? How many of us have gone through purification and, and we rebelled, we didn't like it, we didn't understand it, but two, three, maybe ten years down the road, we went, this is what the Lord was doing. Okay, now I understand why he was preparing me for this. And, and it just came to you like a bolt of lightning. Now I understand. Now I understand what the Lord was doing. See, the differences between us might be great or they might be slight in how we experience these things. But the love and the providence and the care that are demonstrated in the doctrines of God do not ever change. The doctrines of God's word are something that we all hold in common. They're the same for you. They're the same for me. They're the same for everybody in Huntsville. They're the same for the people in Siberia. Okay, it, the doctrines are all the same. The Ten Commandments are kind of commandments, okay? And they're the same. They've been since they came down on the tablet. They will be until the Lord returns. Let's look at a couple biblical examples of what I'm talking about here. And, and we won't turn to them because you'll know them. They're, they're, they're in plain sight all the time. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. Just a straight line of four of the patriarchs and how they lived and how the Lord worked in their lives in different ways. We notice that their lives are very distinct but, and the Lord moves in their lives and calls them to different things, but yet the Lord is always the same in the midst of all those things. Abraham is called to what? Get out of town. Leave your country, go someplace else. Isaac is called to what? Go redig the wells that have been filled in. Jacob is called to leave and go to another country. Joseph is called to do what? Well, he was cast into slavery, abandoned. He saves his family. He not only saves his family, but he saves an entire nation through his power, his position of power and authority. We understand the word of the God and the doctrines that are taught here 
while working out our salvation how? Scripture says work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Okay, we go about it and, and apply those doctrines in our lives, in what we face each and every day. So that shows us how important it is to know the word, to be able to live it, so we can interpret how it is that we are to experience and apply those things. Again, verse 10. For you, O Lord, have tried us, have tested us. God puts his people to the test. Let's look at it this way. Um, I drive my daughter to school almost every day. One day a week, she has a vocabulary test. So what does she do in the car on the way to school? She studies vocabulary. Why? Because she has a test. She wants to do well in the test or on the test. So what if you, and, and you know, those of us who are, are, have certain, are, are in certain professions, we know that uh, you're, you're licensed or you're accredited, and to keep that license or accreditor, you have to sometimes take a test, go to more classes, uh, make sure your skills are up to a certain level. And, and to do that, you do what ahead of time? Well, you study, because you don't want to get to the test and bomb it. It's bad when you bomb a test, okay? Well, that's what Scripture does here in these trials. These trials are testing for us. If we never had tests, would you go and study on your own? Okay? Uh, no, and what would happen if you didn't, because that's kind of our nature. I mean, some people would, but most of us, we're busy and we're going to cruise in our profession and well, I'm just not going to get any better because uh, this is the way it is. Well, if you're not tested, then you don't prepare. If you don't prepare, you don't get better at what you do. You don't take in more information. You're, you're not purified in that process. Well, this is what he's talking about here. You're going to be tested and your skills are going to improve as far as your Christian life is concerned. This is one reason why the Lord puts us to a trial. He says, you have proved us. God puts us in real life situations. We have the doctrine. Now he says, I want to see you live out that doctrine. I'm going to test you with it. I'm going to try you with it. So the answer, the question for us is, will we live out what we know to be true from God's word? And really, the only time we know if we're going to actually do that is when we are trialed, when we are tested, when we are proved. How do we live out the truths of God's word? And the whole purpose of this is so that we will be purer, okay, so that the dross of our lives can be scraped off the top and we will be pure. Now, he mentions the refining of silver here. And, and you know, I went and did a little research on this, and you can do this at home. You can refine silver at home with almost exclusively chemicals that you might have around your house. A little bit of baking soda. Uh, I'm making it too simple here. You've got to have Drano. I saw that. And you've got to have some other things in a five-gallon bucket. And you can purify silver through household chemicals because it takes heat, and sometimes it's a chemical reaction heat that purifies silver. Well, for generations, before Drano came around, we used heat. And you have to heat silver in a particular way so that you don't destroy it. You have to heat it to somewhere over 1,600 degrees, and then the dross comes to the top. The dross are all the impurities. Okay, if you have a ring on, the ring, and it's gold, it might be what, 14 carat, might be 18 carat, might be 24 carat, is there something else beyond 24? 
24 is pretty pure. Well, that is just, it has been heated again and the dross has gone off. They let it cool a little bit, they heat it again, more dross comes to the top, it is scraped off. Now, if you want to do more with the silver, you have to heat it again up to over another 300 plus degrees, and then you can pour it out, and, and that's how you get that fine looking silver that you have. But this is a process of proving, and in proving you are tested, and in testing you are purified by having the dross of your life scraped off. It removes the impurities of the human heart. And, and who, really, we're... Nobody wants that. Nobody wants to be heated like that and tested like that. But yet, if we're going to be more Christ-like, that's what has to happen. John Bunyan, in his work, The Pilgrim's Progress, um, has a, a pilgrim has, has picked up, there are four others at this point in the story, and he enters what's called the Valley of Humiliation. Now, Bunyan puts the Valley of Humiliation right after the Palace of Beautiful. Okay, so you have these distinctions here. You've got this great place, the Palace of Beautiful, and, and, and Pilgrim, Christian and uh, his three friends, discretion, piety, charity, four friends, and prudence, leave this palace, and they must enter the Valley of Humiliation. So let me quote a little bit here. Then he began to go forward, but discretion, piety, charity, and prudence would accompany him down to the foot of the hill, so they went on together, reiterating their former discourses, till they came to go down the hill. Then said Christian, as it was difficult coming up, so, so far as I can see, it is dangerous going down. Yes, said Prudence, so it is, for it is a hard matter for a man to go down into the valley of humiliation. It is a hard matter for a man to go down into the valley of humiliation. But yet sometimes that's where the Lord puts us. Because if we don't experience those things, the, the, the sin in our lives is not mortified, we are not proved, we are not humbled, we are not refined. These are the times in our lives that we are made to drink what the Scripture says, the waters of affliction. The waters of affliction. But let me remind you of a couple things from Scripture. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. If you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not his son. All who desire to live, a godly, to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. In the world you will have tribulation. Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you. Why? For your testing, as though some strange thing was happening to you, expect it. Turn over to 1 Peter chapter 1. Trials are the mark of Jesus' special love. No one who is loved by Christ is exempt from being proved. But why? Why does God take us through these trials? We've talked about it. To remove the impurities from our lives. 1 Peter chapter 1. This is part of what we read earlier this morning. Look at verse 6.
In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, that the proof of your faith, and their faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter both compares and contrasts gold and faith here. Faith is more precious than gold, and gold is very precious. Okay, there's a story of the guy, and he's a very rich man, and he gets up to heaven, and he gets there, and he goes, oh man, I just, I just wasn't counting on being here so soon. And, and he really missed a lot of the things from, from earth, and, and you know, he kind of bargains with, I guess Peter's the gatekeeper, as lore tells us. And he says, let me go back down for one day and, and collect some things so, so I'll be ready better ready for heaven he goes okay go down you got 24 hours he goes down he comes back the next day with his big sack full of stuff and, and he says well what did you bring and he empties the sack and all these gold bars fall out of the sack and he goes pavement you brought pavement to heaven okay <laughs> streets are lined with gold you know that okay but gold is earthly it's temporary faith is not and this faith is more precious than gold then he compares it they're both refined by fire they're proved they are tested and the nuance here is testing with a view towards approval it's not testing just to stomp you it is testing with a view toward approval god does not test our faith to make it fail but to make it better to make it pure, to wipe off the dross that rises to the top. He does this by putting us in the furnace of affliction where we're forced to trust him. Just like having a test. You don't study unless you know you have that test on Friday. Then you prepare for it. Okay? When do you trust the Lord the most? When do you see people flocking to church? When their lives are a mess? Okay? Because now I've got no place else to turn. Where am I going to go? I'll try the Lord now. Ah, he is faithful. Even sometimes when we're not, He is faithful. And when we come to Him and confess our sin and seek His mercy, He's faithful. We need to be clear that there, are, there is such a thing as false faith. And sometimes those whose faith is tested, that will be demonstrated as false, false faith. Remember the parable of the sower? Jesus says that in the shallow, the rocky soil, the seed sprouts out, sprouts up, along comes the sun, dries it off, and it's done. Okay, along comes the thorns of life, chokes it out. That is false faith. But genuine faith will grow stronger. The trials will make it pure. What's the song say? The flame will not hurt thee, I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. George Mueller was the director of the Ashley Down Orphanage in Bristol, England. He's a guy, he never wrote a fundraising letter. He never told anybody that he needed money. But yet for many years, he clothed, housed, and fed thousands of orphans. And he would just share the story of what was going on and people would provide for their needs. He wrote, the Lord gives faith for the very purpose of trying it for the glory of his own name and for the good of him who has it. 
And by the very trial of our faith, we not only obtain blessing to our own souls, but become the better acquainted with God, if we hold fast our confidence in Him. But our faith is also, by the exercise, strengthened. And so it comes that if we walk with God in any measure of uprightness of heart, the trials of faith will be greater and greater. You think, well, I'm maturing and I'm, 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 I'm getting closer to God. What should we expect from what Mueller has said? Some more trials, some more trials. Spurgeon said it is right when he says that not only the trials, but also the distress is necessary. He's talking about Peter here. He argues that it is needful that sometimes a Christian spirit even be cast down. Christ experienced distress even unto death in the garden. If a Christian doesn't go through those times when he is depressed, he will grow proud. He won't be able to relate to others who suffer. He will miss lessons that we learn in no other way. Martin Luther said, affliction is the greatest book in my library. I don't really want that book in my library. But we all need it. We all need it. The result that both the psalmist and Peter say will come from this will be praise and glory and honor to our Heavenly Father. Maybe in the last week, maybe in the last month, maybe in the last years, God has been proving you. And like I said before, you're questioning the Lord, aren't I pure enough? Don't you want to move on to somebody else, Lord? But maybe you've fought against it in that fashion. Maybe it's time to look at those things as what the psalmist says and what Peter says, that the Lord is making you pure, that the Lord is making you more like Christ. Maybe it's time to stop fighting against the Lord and wondering when he's going to stop, but maybe to embrace the test and to become more like Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we all have impurities. None of us are exempt from them. We all have things in our lives that need your work. But yet there is a fear in our lives of your hand, of your purifying hand. We know it's what we need, but there's often struggle and pain involved in trials. There's often unpleasantness to go through to get to a purer state. Lord, I pray for those who are in the midst of trial, in the midst of proving today, that your mercy would come and descend upon them, that perhaps today they would no longer see it as something to fight against, something to hate, but, but perhaps this is a time to see you at work in their life, to see you at work caring for them, sustaining them, proving them, making them more like Christ. Lord, remind them of your sustaining grace, that there is nothing that you bring us into that you have not prepared us for, that you will not desert us in the midst of, but you will carry us through, even when we have no strength to do on our own, but yet you will see us through. Prove us, Lord, that we might be more like Christ. And we pray in his name. Amen.